Thank you. Man, uh, thank you for that introduction. It's good to be here. And uh, I, I didn't know Ryan until yesterday we met for the first time. We talked on the phone a few weeks ago. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your pastor. This dude's legit. I, 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 I get to speak. My job takes me around to many different churches, environments, conferences, Christian schools. And uh, you guys got an awesome leadership team here. I just want to tell you, like, I've, I'm so utterly impressed. Um, worship team was amazing. So I'm, it's truly an honor to be here and to share God's word with you. So um, with that, I'm going to be reading from Luke 19. Luke 19 Uh, verses 1 through 10. Can we all stand for the reading of God's word? This is the famous story of Jesus and his encounter with Zacchaeus. I'll read it, explain kind of where we're going to go, and then we'll dig into the passage. It says, Luke 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to get crucified. It's a few months before the crucifixion. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, and he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and he climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down, Zacchaeus came down once and at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter and said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here now I, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. You may sit down. <laughs> Not used to people standing to read God's word. The first service, everybody stood. I thought you were rushing the stage to attack me or something. I was kind of scared. Um, but I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, you know, what, one way to summarize Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is that he had a, a very high ethical standard. Jesus had a very, very high ethical standard. And yet, he also radically loved people who fell short of that standard. In fact, he didn't just love people people who fell short of that standard, he seemed to actually like them. Because <laughs> sometimes we think of love as simply like giving up of yourself and doing stuff for others, which it definitely includes that. But if Jesus wasn't just begrudgingly pouring out himself into the lives of others. He seemed to actually delight in people, even though they might not be living according to the standard that he had just set. Jesus didn't need to agree with people to be in relationship with him. And Zacchaeus is a, is a perfect example of this. Zacchaeus stands in as someone who is shamed and shunned by the religion of his day, marginalized by the religious elite. And, and after all, I mean, he's a tax collector. He's, he's doing things that went against the Jewish way of life. And so there were massive tensions, as you 
No, between the, the tax gatherers of the first century and the religious community of Judaism in the first century. And so I want to I want to look at this passage with one main question in mind, okay? I want to look at this passage with a question that goes like this. Are there any parallels between how Jesus interacts with this tax collector and how Jesus' followers might interact with the LGBTQ community? Are there any parallels between how Jesus interacts with this tax collector and how modern church might view and treat and, and relate to the modern LGBTQ community today. Now, I know I heh, dropped maybe an unforeseen bomb on some of you, so let me give a few caveats and qualifications here. First of all, first of all, this passage is not speaking directly about uh, the LGBTQ conversation. It's not talking about gay or uh, lesbian or trans people specifically. So I don't want to make this passage I don't want to force this passage to say more than, than the author, Luke, is, is intending it to say, okay? But it, there are some interesting parallels between how the first century Jewish community viewed tax gatherers in the, first, uh, in the first century. There were massive tensions between these two communities, massive tensions. They did not get along, get along well at all, and we'll see in a few minutes why that is. And so today, if I can... I guess, uh, state the obvious, there are also massive tensions between the church and the LGBTQ community. And there's reasons for those tensions. You know, the church might say, well, uh, the LGBTQ community is, is not uh, living the way we think they should be living. They're doing things we don't agree with. And also, first century Jews would say, well, the reason why we don't like tax gatherers is because they're doing things and, and living in ways that go against our religious values. So if you take these tensions that existed between the, these first century communities and to, today's more modern communities, the church and the LGBT community, there are some parallels that I think are worthy to explore. And yet Jesus enters in the middle of that Tension. And I want to look at how Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus. And second, my second caveat or point is that I'm not, I don't want to um, say that first century tax collectors are just like modern day LGBTQ people. There's lots of differences here. Lots of differences. Dif different uh, ways of living, different diversity of people within each of those groups. So what I want to do though is I want to look at how ancient religious people, first century religious people, how they viewed tax collectors. Like their, their perception of tax gatherers is actually fairly similar to how modern day, let's just say Christians, might view the LGBTQ community today. So there's parallels in the perceptions that religious people have toward that other community out there is how some people might frame it. Now, let me, uh, I'm new here, so I know, I, I know I'm, 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 I'm treading on thin ice here with this topic, okay? I get it. I, 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 this isn't my first time doing this, okay? So let me, let me just maybe give you a little insight to where I'm coming from. So I'm, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm my, my main passion and drive in life is I absolutely love studying and teaching the Bible, I'm 47 now, just turned 47 last month, so happy birthday to me. Um, thank you, yeah, yeah. I, I know I looked 32, but um, I, uh, I got saved at 19. Before I was a Christian, 
I hated to study anything, hated to read books. I, I was an athlete and I loved just to be outside on, on the field, doing something active, doing something outside. Hated to sit there behind a desk and read a book. I, I, I didn't read a book cover to cover until I was 17 years old. And I still got like a 3.5 GPA in high school, which says something maybe about our California. I, I grew up in Fresno, California, and I, maybe, I don't know, maybe I just cheated my way through high school. Whatever it is, I don't know. What's done is done. Don't judge me. But I, when I became a Christian at 19, I prayed that prayer, according to J- James 1.5, that says, if anybody lacks wisdom, pray, and God will give it generously. So I prayed, God, I, I, I want wisdom. Please give it to me generously. And I thought, I literally thought I would wake up the next day like full-on matrix, like downloaded wisdom. I'm like super smart, you know, but I woke up and I was still super stupid, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> I could hit a fastball, but I couldn't read a book, you know. Um, and, but something happened. I literally almost overnight, I got this insatiable desire to want to study the Bible. And I, I rarely use the term miracle. I, I, you know, people talk about a miracle like, you know, I was sick last night and I woke up and I'm better now. It's a miracle. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's a miracle. It's awesome. God worked or whatever. But like, I like to use the word miracle really specifically to something that's just completely unnatural and inexplicable. I, I, would, I would come close to saying, I think it was a miracle that almost overnight God made me insatiably desiring to study the Bible when just a week before I couldn't stand reading anything. I would lock myself in, in, in a closet with like, you know, a couple like commentaries my mom had or whatever in, in the Bible and I would sit there for like seven hours just studying and studying. I couldn't get enough. And someone said, you know, well, gosh, look at you. You should go to Bible college. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Well, so what's a, you can go and get a degree in Bible and your homework is studying the Bible. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. This is amazing. So went to Bible college, got a degree. I said, all right, what's next? <laughs> well, there, uh, there's this place called seminary where you go and you take more Bible classes. I'm like, great, sign me up. So three and a half years, whatever, like 100 hours of you know, Bible classes or whatever, and like, so, you know, more Bible. And I just I couldn't get enough. So I was like, all right, what's next? They're like, well, I mean, if you want to keep going, you can actually get a doctorate in the Bible. I'm like, get out. A PhD in Bible? Like, is that a thing? Like, yeah, you can get a PhD in the Bible. I'm like, great, sign me up. So three and a half years, you got a PhD in the New Testament. All right, what's next? My wife, you know, looks at me and says, I'll tell you what's next. You're going to go get a job because you're not going to be a perpetual student. You haven't gotten out of your PJs in three years, you know. (laughs) Um, And then I got a job teaching the Bible. I would, I would wake up every day and study the Old Testament and teach the Old Testament to college students. I mean, I, I honestly, my life's been filled with ups and downs, but in terms of my, 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 my career, I have just been a kid in a candy shop. I study, teach, and try to live out what the Bible says. So, so everything from, from this stage, what I'm going to say about this sometimes controversial topic is coming from that perspective. I want to go deeper into the text and go where the text leads. I also, just to clarify my theological position, I mean, I, 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 when it comes to the question of marriage, I believe God created marriage to be between a man and a woman, and that all sexual relationships belong within that covenant bond. Okay, so I hold to what's called a, you know, a traditional or historically Christian view of, of marriage. And I just, you know, I want you to know that so that you don't, you know, misunderstand, you know, what I'm going to say for like some kind of, you know, different theology. Um, in my experience, I will say this, 
most Bible-believing Christians that I know are not struggling to believe what the Bible says about marriage. That's not the common struggle I encounter. The common struggle I encounter is Christians that tell me, you know what, my, my son just came out as gay. My daughter just told me she's non-binary. My, my best friend told me he's bisexual, and I, I'm, I'm, I want to be committed to the text of Scripture, but I also want to love my friend or my son or my daughter well, and I'm, I, I, don't know, I don't know how to do that. If that's you, that might be some of you, I think that passages like this one before us will help us do that. So Luke 19, Jesus enters Jericho, and he's mobbed by a you know, ton of people. And Luke immediately singles out this person, Zacchaeus, who's called a chief tax collector who was wealthy. Now, you, you probably, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you, know, you, you hear about tax collectors and they're bad. You know, I think sometimes we don't maybe appreciate um, the nature of tax collecting in the first century. So uh, about 100 years before this encounter, with Zacchaeus about 100 years before, Roman Empire is you know, expanding throughout the Mediterranean world, and they, they, they take over Israel. They conquer Israel. And Israel's kind of used to this now. They've been, they've been dominated by various Gentile empires for centuries, and so the new kid on the block is Rome, and they conquer Israel. And, um, you know, the Roman Empire was incredibly oppressive, but it was also you know, let, kind of let people live. Like I said, hey, we'll let you live your life. But the one, one of the most oppressive things they did is they excessively taxed people. Taxation back then was not quite like taxation today. You might say, yeah, I hate paying my taxes too, or taxes too, are too high in California or whatever. That, that's, this is a whole different scenario. Back then, when an empire would conquer another nation, taxation was a way to um, show who is the one dominating the, uh, the, the oppressed. It was a form of oppression. In fact, when there were revolts, like in the first century, which happened quite a bit in that world, the first thing that triggered the revolt was people stopped paying their taxes. They would say, they would kind of give like a middle finger to the, to the empire and say, we're not going to pay taxes. And Rome would view that as an act of rebellion, as them throwing off the shackles of the Roman authority. So what Rome did, though, is that instead of having Roman like soldiers or personnel collect taxes, they would, they would find Jewish sellouts, Jewish people who were willing to turn their back on their neighbor for a quick buck. And they would have Jewish people be the tax collectors on the ground. And so that's who Zacchaeus is. He is a, a Jew who is hated by his fellow brothers and sisters, his Jewish community, because he has sold out to the Roman Empire. And not only that, but it says that he was not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He's like in charge of tax collectors. And he was wealthy. How did he get wealthy? By lining his pockets with the hard-earned money from his Jewish brothers and sisters. You can see why they did not like tax collectors back then. On top of that, according to Jewish tradition, tax collectors were known for, for living immoral lives, for, for not living according to the Jewish standard of how a, a good Jew should live. It says in verse 5, when, when, uh, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, 
Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, that sounds kind of strange. You know, he's inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Um, but I think we, we have to get inside the, the mind and, and culture of the first century to really understand what's going on here. And, and you know, um, I think this is harder for some of my maybe white American friends to, to understand. You know, when I get invited over to my, my, right, my white friend's house, you know, bless her heart, you know, it's like, yeah, come for dinner, you know, for, you know, be 45 minutes, um, we'll eat real quick, and then you can go home, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's, you know, it's just you're coming to fill your stomach, you know. But when I like go to different cultures around the world, like I, you know, I travel a decent amount. And when I go to like Nepal, I go to, I've been to Nepal several times. When you get invited over to a house for a meal, it is a five hour event. And it's a very poor country and they might have a whole week's worth of food to, to joyfully give, give you. And you kind of feel bad. They're like so much, just piles of, of their best food. You have like several people in the kitchen just working so hard because to come over to somebody's house is not just for a superficial visit. To have a meal is not just to fill your stomach. This is a sign of relationship. And if there's been any tension, this is a sign of reconciliation. This is a sign of, I want to know you. You're going to get to know me. And we're going to come out of this house friends. According to the Jewish 2nd century document called the Mishnah, 2nd, 3rd century uh, document called the Mishnah, this is a Jewish document. And in the Mishnah, it says, if a tax gatherer enters a house, all that is within it becomes unclean. Like the Jewish perspective was tax collectors were so toxic, so terrible that they would render unclean the entire room that they entered into. So his house is an unclean, toxic uh, space just oozing with sin is, is how the religious people would consider it. And so naturally when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I must go to your house, all the people are like, go where? Do you know his vocation? Do you know that you are going to be unclean if you go inside his house? He's a terrible person. He's not living the way we think he should live. He's doing bad things. We don't like that community. And so naturally, verse 6, when Zacchaeus comes down and he probably very cautiously kind of, all right, come on. It's on, it's on you, I guess. You invited yourself over, you know. The crowd sees this and they began to grumble and say, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. How dare he? You know, Jesus, I think, my mind, I, you know, I like to kind of put myself in the biblical stories. You ever do that? Just sit there, just kind of just like, just close your eyes and imagine, like, what, what, what would this have been like? And, and, you know, I think Jesus missed a golden church planning opportunity here. Because he, he, if he had called Zacchaeus on the carpet, he would have gained a huge following. And he had loads of reasons to call him on the carpet. I mean, he could have grabbed Zacchaeus by his, you know, wee little ankles. You know, he's a little dude, so he could grab him on the ankles, hold him up and shake him for all he's worth and, and say, you little thief. You, you're a liar, you're an idolater, you're doing this, that, you're committing treason, you're turning your back. You know, he had a laundry list of all the things he could have told him to stop doing. And even if he laid into Zacchaeus, Jesus still would have been both truthful and just. 
And he would have won the crowd. Because when it comes to the other, the mob always prefers justice to grace. But he didn't. He looks up and very daringly, boldly says, Zacchaeus, hurry immediately, right now. You got to come down because I must, I must stay at your house right now. And there's an interesting uh, Greek word, okay, that's translated must or immediately here. Now, just, I don't know. I got to, I know sometimes preachers like to talk about Greek words for no reason, just kind of show off their Greek. Okay, I know your preachers don't do that. I, <laughs> you know, I've heard, you know, preachers will say like, you know, John three sixteen, you know, for God so loved the world. Well, hold on a second. The word world is the Greek word cosmos. <laughs> like, oh, what does that mean? World. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Thanks for that. Um, so I, I, just so you know, I only talk about like Greek words when, when sometimes it does bring, maybe there's, maybe there's a nuance. It's just hard to capture when you translate it into English. And, and those of you who are bilingual, like, you know, like sometimes in your, in your, in your native tongue, like there's just certain phrases, ideas, words that there's just no perfect way to say it in English, right? And so same thing with Greek. There's sometimes there's, there's Greek words that are just hard to capture the full kind of full power and nuance of it in the English language. And I, I think there's a word here, the Greek word that is like that. It's the Greek word, if you, if you care, it's, called, it's pronounced day, as in D-E-I, day. And it's used oftentimes in the Gospels to refer to Jesus's ministry. It's sometimes translated must or it is necessary. But it most often refers to something that's not just like, the word must is just a little weak. Like, I'm so hungry, I must eat. It's kind of like, I don't know, like it's just a strong kind of emotion that will come and go or whatever. The word day captures something that is of divine necessity. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Matthew 16, 21, uh, Jesus says, It is necessary, day, for me to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the ruling priests and the scribes to be killed and to be raised on the third day. This isn't Jesus saying, well, it's kind of nice out. I kind of fancy going and getting crucified. And maybe I'll get raised from the dead, you know, for dessert. You know, like it's not just some like, oh, I kind of desire this. Or it's, this is of divine necessity. This is written into the divine script. This is in my divine blood. And I'm so compelled to do this that I can do no other. In Luke 4, 43, Jesus says, it is necessary day that I preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns as well, for this is why I was sent. This is my divine heart beating, and it's beating, and it's beating, and this is part of the mission that God, that my Father has sent me on, on, and I could do no other. And you know what, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house, day. It is necessary that I stay at your house, not his house, her house, her house, but you, because you are the most distant from this Jewish community, and I know that. And because it's you I need to stay with. He seeks the one who is the most marginalized in that group and says, I am under divine compulsion to stay at your house. And I imagine, you know, the crowd just loses it. 
He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. His house, Jesus? He's a tax collector. Do you know what that means? Like, how could you go and honor him and want to be in relationship with this person? That's that's exactly why I need to be with him, Jesus says. You know, sometimes the gospel will compel you to hang out with people who will make your tribe really nervous. Sometimes it will bring you to spaces that people who you may share a lot of like-mindedness with might not be okay with. Now, once he's inside Zacchaeus' house, okay, so the scene kind of changes in verse 7. This is when the crowd, if you notice, there's a slight change in kind of the, the tenses in the language. It says, he has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. So from verse 8 on, the scene is now inside Zacchaeus' house. So it's just kind of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And even here, here's where you can almost expect Jesus to kind of like, you know, he, he comes into the house and closes the door. And, you know, here's where you kind of expect Jesus to go, you know. All right, look, I didn't want to do this out there. I didn't want to shame you in front of everybody. But, dude, you got some serious issues you need to work on. I, I brought my laundry list of, of this and this and that and that. And you're living the tax collecting lifestyle. And, you, and you're violating all these things that I say you should be doing. He could have easily laid into him. And again, all of that would have been very truthful. But what is... So here's what's shocking, though. Zacchaeus immediately repents. Like, excessively. (laughs) In verse 8 and 9, he's just, like, running around, like, selling all this stuff and giving back the stuff that he stole. And I'm going to give it to the poor. and, And you know what Jesus said? to get Zacchaeus to repent? You know what he said? If you have a red lighter Bible, it's easy to see. You know what Jesus said to get Zacchaeus to repent? Nothing. He only speaks twice in the entire story. The first statement is, Zacchaeus, I must, because I'm the son of God, because I'm on this divine mission, I must stay at your house today. That's the first time he speaks. And then at the end, he says, you know, he's in the corner eating a fig or whatever. And he's like, you just got saved. (laughs) Zacchaeus' repentance was a necessary part of his salvation experience. You cannot follow God and be right with God without repenting from sin. And I believe, as most of you do, that even that repentance is a, a divine act of God that gives us the strength to do something like that. But we can't obey God until we first know that we are accepted by God. We can't obey God until we are pronounced righteous by God. Or in theological terms, justification precedes sanctification. And here it is Zacchaeus' encounter with the, with the love of Christ. Somebody willing to take a social risk to go inside the house to say, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to get to know you. I want to delight in you. I want to know who you are, Zacchaeus. I'm going to come under your roof. We're going to have a few meals together, maybe toss back a few glasses of wine. We're going to eat, you know, hang out for about five hours and we're going to get to know each other. And everybody's going to be crazy. They're going to be so upset about this. And I don't care because this is etched into the divine mission of why I came. I came to seek and save the lost. I came to reach the one, not to coddle the 99. 
And it's this love without footnotes that pushes obedience out the other side. Zacchaeus, it says in verse 80, look, Lord, here I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount, four times the amount. You know, according to Jewish law in in the book of Leviticus, if somebody sold something, they were required to give back 125%. So if some person stole 100 shekels and they got caught, (laughs) they would have to give that person 125 shekels. Here, Zacchaeus gives back 400%. He steals 100 shekels, he's going to give 400 shekels. Because, you know, the law may require compliance, but it's an encounter with God's scandalous grace that gives us the strength to produce excessive Holy Spirit-filled obedience. I'm a parent of four kids. If I want to get compliant, I can get my kids to comply. You yell loud enough, you scream loud enough, you know, you just exert your power and you cause fear in your kids. I can get them to comply. It's harder to get heartfelt obedience. But when they know that I love them, that I delight in them, that I step into the world and look them in the eyes and and listen to what they're going through, whether I agree or not agree, I get to know them, I get to know their humanity. That's a better ingredient for radical obedience. It's what Paul says in Romans 2.4, that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the argument of theology that leads to repentance repentance, the kindness of God. And I think here Jesus embodies the kindness of God. And that's why Zacchaeus repented. He didn't need to give him the kind of the laundry list of all the things he knew he was doing wrong. You know, there's not a single tax collector in heaven who's there because Jesus gave his stance on the tax collecting lifestyle. Does Jesus have a stance on the tax collecting lifestyle? He's got lots of, lots of opinions about, you know, People committing treason and stealing and all that. Yeah, he, he absolutely has a high ethical standard. But in order to get people to respond in obedience, he always front loads love. Or let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me put this in, in the most accurate terms I can. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in almost every case where Jesus encounters somebody who has been marginalized shamed and shunned by the religious community, in almost every case when he encounters that kind of person, he front loads love, kindness, or a desire for relationship. Let me give you a few examples in case some of you don't believe me. Okay, so, so the woman at the well, the woman at the well, John 4. Here is a Samaritan woman who has had five husbands and is now living with somebody who's not her husband. There's three reasons why a Jewish man in the first century should not give this woman the time of day. But he walks up to her and he starts a conversation with her. And, and, you know, he even says, you know, you have had, you know, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he goes, yeah, I know you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Now we read, we, we, kind of butcher this story because we read it through a modern lens. We're like, oh yeah, see? So she's like sexually promiscuous. She's sleeping around and divorcing all these husbands. I'm like, wait, wait. In the first century, women weren't the ones doing the divorcing. 
This woman was a victim of a male-dominated patriarchal culture that just chewed up and tossed out women when they were through with them. These, this is a woman who has been married to a man, and the man's the one who threw her on the streets and divorced her. And another man married her, and he also divorced her. And that kind of reputation in the first century would cultivate such a, well, it would cultivate such a horrible reputation. It would be hard to survive in the first century to be a woman who is being thrown out by man after man after man. Finally, she ends up shacking up with a guy who's not her husband. And that's, okay, so that, that is, that is a, a sinful thing to do. And Jesus calls her on it, but he first says, look, I know you have been through five, five marriages. I know you have been used and abused by a lot of men. And I know that this is part of your story. And maybe it was an act of survival. Maybe it was a desperate attempt simply not to starve to death on the streets or end up in prostitution that she ends up living with a guy she's not married to. But Jesus wants to get to know the full story of what this woman has been through. He leads with a desire for relationship before he kind of names the sin. The prodigal son, I love the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. You have this um, son, you know, who, who uh, demands his inheritance early. The father gives it to him. He goes into Gentile territory, squanders the money, feels terrible. And then he's like, okay, I need to repent. I need to repent. I'm going to return home. And he goes home. He runs home. And when the father sees him from afar, it says, from afar, so he doesn't, so in the story, the father doesn't know that his son is repentive. And yet he still runs, which is very shameful. Older man in that culture, pull up his robe and, and run to meet his wayward son when the entire village would expect him to go and just beat his son, to beat him into submission for shaming his father like that. The father does something that was socially unacceptable. He goes and is so delighted to see his son. And even when the son starts like repenting, it's almost like this father cuts him off halfway through and says, go kill the fatted calf. We need to celebrate because my son, I thought he was dead, but he is alive. He has returned. He ran to meet his son before he even knew his son was repentive. The woman caught in adultery. Here's a woman who you know, for some reason, the dude got off the hook here. Who's the guy that was caught in adultery? It takes two to tango. But some, you know, the Jews, they, they, they grab the woman and, and they drag her out. And she did, she was doing something sinful. She was caught in the act. And Jesus comes and stands by her side. Whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. They all drop their stones. And he looks and says, who's left to condemn you? She says, no one. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you before he said, before he said, go and sin no more. All these stories are they're beautiful stories of repentance and obedience, but they are, Jesus initiates the relationship by saying, I desire your humanity. I want to be in relationship with you. I see value in you. And Jesus was bold enough to say, I do not condemn you, even though she did something very wrong. And, you know, sometimes we, I don't, we get used to these stories, right? And, and, and sometimes we don't understand the, 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 how scandalous they would have been in that first century. I often ask myself this question. This is going to be a little, okay, hold on. Okay, ready? Buckle up. 
Would we still like this story if the person caught in adultery was a gay man? That, what, would, what, would, what would that have done to the church? <laughs> I wonder if that would change some things because we love this story. It's a story of grace. Sometimes, sometimes I, I don't know your story where you're coming from, but sometimes Christian grace has a leash. It, goes, it can go far, but just not too far. What if Jesus stood there, gay man caught in adultery, and says, you know what? Neither. I'm going to stand here by your side while these religious people attack you. And they're, they're, going to, they're going to have all kinds of questions about my theology. All, what, do you, what does that mean? What, do you, what are your views? You know, I'm going to stand here and say, I do not condemn you. Go, go and sin no more from the posture of I want to be in relationship with you. I love um, Luke 15.1. We, we, you know, we often... Um, you know, we know Jesus kind of pursued other people, right? Like he was chasing after the marginalized. He was chasing after sinners and tax collectors. Luke 15, 1, it's, it's kind of one of those throwaway verses that just, you kind of run, race past it to get to the cool stories he's about to tell. But it says tax collectors and sinners, they were drawing near to hear him. They wanted to be around Jesus. And it wasn't because Jesus was some pot-smoking hippie that didn't care about, you know, how people lived. Jesus had a very high standard of obedience, and he was very clear with, where, with what he believed. And he would call people to radical obedience. And yet people who were falling short, for some reason, they still wanted to be around him. You see, Jesus had a very high ethical standard, but he loved those who fell short of that truth. I love um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever sat down and read the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, and then tried to go do that? <laughs> I mean, he sets the bar so high. And here's what's fascinating about the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew alternates Jesus' speeches with narratives about how Jesus is behaving. So Matthew 5 to 7, big speech, 8 to 9. Matthew 8 to 9 is a narrative about Jesus, and chapter 10 is a speech. 11 to 12 is a narrative. Chapter 13 is a speech, and on and on. It, it, it does that back and forth throughout the book of Matthew, and most scholars kind of who have examined this say, well, the narratives are, are sort of in, in, ingrained with the speech. Like what Jesus says he is kind of connected with how he's kind of living, how he's interacting with people in the narratives. What's fascinating is in Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus gives this utterly high ethical standard. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, the narrative that's tethered to that, he goes and hangs out with about eight or nine people, most of whom are falling short of exactly what Jesus said. High ethical standard. And yet wanted to be around people who are living, falling short of that ethical standard. Our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. And I can't, I've spent the last 10 years believing and holding to and preaching a biblical or traditional view of marriage. I'm utterly theologically convinced that marriage is between a man and a woman. I'm utterly convinced that all kinds of sexual relationships outside that covenant bond are, are not God's design. It's not what God wants. And yet what I've seen in this conversation, this, this, this massive tension between the church and the LGBTQ community, 
they, they've heard a lot about our, our, you know, our, our truth, meaning like they've heard a lot about our theology and what we believe and what LGBT people are doing wrong. They, they, they know loud and clear <laughs> what Christians think they're doing wrong. What they don't know is, do we desire to be in relationship with them? Do we even want them at our churches? Do we want them to have an encounter with Christ? Do we want them over for a meal? A few years ago, I read a story about two lesbians who decided to go to church one Sunday. They, they were, they were uh, not churchgoers, okay? So this is kind of a, a new thing for them. And, and one of the uh, women named uh, Amy, she turned to her girlfriend, Rachel, and said, hey, let's go to church today. Let's go for fun. And Rachel's like, I hate church. Why would we go to church? She's, and Amy's like, no, 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 you don't get it. We're, we're going to go and we're going to push their buttons and we're going to, you know, stir things up. Because he, <laughs> you know what their motto is, right? Their motto is come as you are. But we all know that that means come as you are unless you're gay. Let's go show them how hypocritical they are. And so Amy says, I came on a mission to shock people. <laughs> Rachel, and this, this is not, this is one story, but this is not an uncommon thing, okay? Rachel and I would hold hands in front of people, sit down, hold hands, try to get it, try to get a rise out of the church that they were at. But instead of the disgusted looks of contempt we expected, people met eyes with us and treated us like we were real people. It's a shame that they expected disgusting looks from other Christians. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that this church had read the story of Zacchaeus and that they met eyes with them and treated them like real people. So we started to come to church weekly. We kept moving closer to the front each week. I can just imagine this scenario. I was, I was a fly on the wall of that church. <laughs> kept moving closer, 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 trying to get a reaction. But when we couldn't shock people, we stopped trying and started learning. Wow. Not long after that, Rachel and I stopped seeing each other, but I kept coming to church because I was searching for something. And the more I listened and learned about the teachings of Jesus, and the more I started to actually believe that God really did love me, I heard more and more about being his masterpiece. And in time... I actually started to believe it. And the more I believed God actually could see something of value in me, the more I trusted him. And Amy came to Christ. I'm not all saying just show kindness and people get saved. This is not some magic formula. Um, sometimes you show kindness and people, you know, don't receive it. Doesn't, you know, it's like, no, whatever. I'm going to live the way I want to live. That's fine. But I can tell you this, I know dozens and dozens of friends of mine who are gay, lesbian, trans, or part of maybe the LGBT community that came to Christ. Many of them already had a church background, but they were so chewed up and spit out by the church, they just didn't want anything to do with the church. And then somewhere in their story, they had an encounter with somebody who embodied the kindness of God. And they would say that I, I know what the Bible says about marriage. I know what it says about same-sex sexual relationships. I, I, I don't need to hear that anymore. What I didn't know is that God actually wanted to be in relationship with me, that God delighted in me. And I definitely didn't think that Christians could ever delight in me. Our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt because the greatest apologetic, the greatest defense of the truth is love. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we were up in that tree like Zacchaeus, you looked up at us and you showed your scandalous kindness and glad welcome to us, Lord. You welcomed us into your heart and your, in a relationship with you, Lord. God, I thank you that you have showered us with such undeserving grace, Lord. And I pray that you would give us the courage to embody that same grace, especially to people that have been pushed to the margins, shamed and shunned by the religious elite of our day. In Christ's name, amen.